Well, good morning. I'm glad that you're joining us for worship this morning. My name is Ben, and I am uh, the vicar, means pastor in training here at Shepherd's Gate. Thank you that I get to do that, and I get to, to be that, and I get to share from God's word with you this morning. If you are joining us uh, and you were here last week and maybe you haven't been in a little while, but you're back here this week, glad. Thank you for coming back, and uh, we want to welcome, of course, those that are joining us online as well. We're kicking off into a new series here right after Easter where we're, we're calling it Church Much, where we're evaluating, where we're looking uh, these next few weeks, these next four weeks, at has church changed? I mean, the last three years have been a little bit different, haven't they? Just a little bit. And now we see that there are, there are trends that have been taking place, with, especially within our country, of church attendance and church membership as that have accelerated of uh, people not being as connected to their churches. And the vast majority of churches uh, that have been compared to their pre-COVID numbers are now trying to get back up to 70%. Some that are trying to get to 80%. I mean, many that are suffering far, far worse attendance than that. Which then for us raises this question and causes us to pause a little bit and go, well, what is, what is number one? What is church? What is church? And then what does it actually even mean to, to gather together to worship? What is the value of that? And that's what we're going to be digging into together today. And so with that in mind, I have to ask you this question, and please feel free to shout out. If you're, you've, you've been here, you know you can. You can talk back. Uh, why? Why do you come to church? Fellowship. Grace. The worship. To learn. Inspiration. To get closer to God. Yeah, there's fantastic reasons. And I mean, for some, let's all be honest, for some, is it a habit? Is it autopilot for anybody that they just like, oh yeah, I just, I just come to church because I've gone to church and I keep going to church and I just go to church. What we've seen is actually that the average attender is no longer attending every week. They're not attending every two. Uh, but in the wider Christian church, that the average church attender maybe is once every six weeks or so. It's like, and I don't believe that to be the case here. I see a lot of your faces every week, so I'm thankful for that. But there's a question behind this question, too, I believe. Does God like it when you come to church? It's a leading question, sorry. <laughs> yes, but we're also going to find out that that's the wrong question. Does he like it? Well, certainly, but yes and no. So we're going we're to dig into that a little bit. Before, before we get to that, well, like what is church? In the, in the New Testament, they use this word when they're describing the early church, ecclesia. Ecclesia means the gathering, the gathering of those that are called. So in the context of the church, it means those that are believers, those that are called by God, those that are Christians, the gathering of them. It was not a reference to a building, right? Especially the early church, they didn't have church buildings, Sometimes they'd gather in temples, but in cases where they weren't allowed to do that, they're kicked out of that, as that continued to grow, they'd have to gather in houses, they'd have to gather in basements, they'd have to actually even hide because it was illegal to even be a Christian at times. So the church certainly, as it started, was not a building, but the church was and continues to be the gathering of believers. So whether we gather here, or we gather in the gym, or we gather on the lawn, or we gather somewhere else, as believers gathering together around God's word and his good gifts, the church is found. And so the church is certainly found here, but, but why gather? Well, God simply, he commanded it. In his word, in the New Testament, 
in the book of Hebrews, it says this. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day there reference to Jesus returning again. This is after Jesus has already died and ascended, and now the church is spreading. And they're saying, we have to continue to meet together. God has commanded us to continue to meet together, to be continually reminded of the good news, the hope that is found in the resurrection. We need to hear it again and again. We even see 2,000 years ago that church attendance was already a problem. As is the habit of some, neglecting to meet together. Some are neglecting to meet together. What could they have had to do other than go to church, right? They didn't have tickets to go see the lions. Well, there would have been lions maybe in the Colosseum. So <laughs> it was a different kind of busy that they had back then. But we already see the charge. The charge is right there. You continue to gather together, church. Gather together in a building. Gather together in a home. Gather together and be the body of Christ. And right there we already see, as it can very easily be found within our society, the idea of, well, that's between me and God. My, I'm good with God. Me and God are good. Like, I, you know, I read the word on my own. Like, I go up to a mountaintop once a week by myself, and I have, uh, you know, a gold-lined Bible that I read by myself, and that's me and God. That's good. You want to read God's word? You want to pray to God on your own? You absolutely should do that. That is not church. Church is the body coming together, gathering together, as you'll see forward in the coming weeks that you are part of the body of Christ. And, and here's the charges. Gather together, church. Come together, church. Encourage each other. Stir one another up. Be reminded of why we are the church. So we're going to be looking and really focusing on two verses. Because we're going to move from this idea of church. And I hope you, you got that. We are the church because we are the believers of what Jesus has done. We have hope found in that. And so we have to continually gather and be reminded of that time and time again. And then comes this question of worship. Then what is worshiping? Because gathering together, part of what we do is worship. Part of what we do is sing, but that's not all that we do. And also, worship isn't solely confined to one hour every week, or in the case of some, one hour every six weeks. In the book of Romans, verse 1, so we're going through two verses, we're going to start with half a verse, because there's a lot here. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Anytime in Scripture that you see the word therefore, you have to ask, what is it therefore? <laughs> well, the first 11 chapters. The first 11 chapters here, Paul is making the case. He is setting us up before he's going to exhort, before he's going to tell the church what you have to do, what you're supposed to do. I need to tell you what's already been done. I need to tell you who you are before a holy and righteous God that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but I also need to tell you the hope that you have in Jesus. I need to lay that out in 11 chapters, and then here a shift takes place, right here in this verse, where for the next four chapters, he's going to start telling them how it is that they are supposed to live this life now, but it has to be in view of the first 11 chapters. You can't have the next four without the first 11. And so he's saying here, in view of God's mercies, well, what does he have in mind 
when he's talking about God's mercies? Or what do you have in mind when you think of that phrase? Where have you seen God's mercies in your life? Where have you seen God at work in small ways throughout each and every day? Or where have you seen these big moments in your life where you've seen the grace, where you've had an experience with God in maybe a supernatural way? Have there been times where you've seen God's abundant mercy? You know, for me, just over a week ago, I was in the, the first Good Friday service getting ready for it. I got a text from my mom. It's a text that I actually get every year from my mom. And it's a picture. She's just reminding me and my siblings. That 29 years ago, it was a Saturday morning. As a five-year-old kid, we were getting ready to go to a little math competition, something called a math pentathlon. And we grabbed our little McDonald's breakfast that morning, and we're driving down a country road in a little Honda Civic. We're going about 55 miles an hour. And unfortunately for us, at that same time, there was a pickup truck headed the opposite direction, also going 55 miles an hour. But the gentleman that was driving that truck had worked a graveyard shift and had fallen asleep at the wheel. And I remember what happened before, and I remember what happened after, but I don't remember the actual impact. There's a five-year-old kid in the front seat of that car, coming to, not knowing what in the world had just happened, and seeing that my mom beside me is unconscious. My sister's in the back seat, and they finally come to as well. They're awake. Mom's still not awake. Car comes by and pulls us out of the car. Mom's still in the car. We get taken away on an ambulance. And little did I know that during that time that firefighters had to get out the jaws of life to actually cut the door off that Honda Civic. By the grace and by the mercy of God that I stand before you and I still have my mom in my life to send that text. Yeah. And that, I believe, helps set the stage for us. It helps remind me every year when I get that text that, that I get to live a life that could have been death. And that is actually what we as Christians all have the same opportunity to do. You see, outside of the hope that you have in Jesus Christ, everyone, everyone else in society, everyone else in every other religion, no matter what they do in their job or in their family or in their life, they are living to die. They are living and they are headed towards death. No matter what, good person, not good person, whatever they do, no matter where they live. In Christ, we are dying to live. In Christ's death, which we celebrated last week and his resurrection, now we have hope that we aren't people that live to die, but from his death we now live. And that like, just like this, that you can be reminded, you can go, in my sin, in my brokenness before a holy and righteous God, this, I deserve death. But because of his mercies, because of his mercies that are new every day, I now get to live. I share this too, and I recognize this, that there are those, especially probably gathered here, even online, that this is, the story isn't always a good story, right? And even in that, we recognize that God works in mysterious ways. 
God is still good, and we trust that, even in the times that we don't completely understand it. Now, see, the author who's writing and penning these words, which we recognize, of course, to be God's words here in the book of Romans, he understood something about the mercies of God as well. You see, Paul, just years prior, years, so he, was, he would have been here. In this photo, or this, this painting from Rembrandt, there's, there's someone being martyred, but that's not Paul. That's the first Christian martyr, Stephen. Stephen, who goes and professes his faith in Jesus, who lays out the gospel, and then what he gets in return for sharing the gospel is to be stoned to death. But if you look just above where Stephen is looking up, seated at the top of that painting is Paul. Paul, who we know from the books of Acts, was not only present during the stoning of Stephen, but he approved of it. Everyone's cloaks are laid out in front of Paul so they can take off their outer cloaks and they can better stone Stephen to death. And that wasn't just a one-time occurrence in Paul's life, but that is who he was. A persecutor of the church, wanting to kill Christians, the ones that were following Jesus Christ, the way is what it was referred to back then, and he wanted to extinguish and exterminate Christianity at that point. That is the same person who is now, in Romans chapter 12, saying, in view of God's mercy, the one who wanted to kill God's people, literally murder other people, but not only murder other people, murder Christians just for simply having faith in Jesus Christ. And now, now God chooses him as his chosen instrument to share the gospel with Gentiles, with non-believers. And so there, Paul is writing these words and saying, in view of God's mercy, he knows a thing or two about God's mercy in his life. One of these times would have been in the book of Acts. Having moved from being a murderer of Christians, transformed by the gospel, transformed by Jesus, in the book of Acts, chapter 16, it says this, the same Paul. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them sing. Here we go, they're worshiping. He's worshiping in a prison cell, in the lowest part of the cell, shackled together with Silas, and he's there because he's proclaiming the exact same gospel that he was trying to stop years earlier. It's only by the grace of God, it's only by God's mercy that Paul could have such a dramatic transformation. It's here too that we see that worship, praising God is not just set apart for one hour, once a week, in a specific building. That worship and praising God can be found in a pit, it can be found in a prison, it can also be found here in the gathering of believers together as well. That we don't just worship and praise God when things are going well. So Paul here, setting the stage for us, and I hope it sets the stage for you. Here we are, in view of God's mercies, you were all dead. Now you're alive because of Jesus. Now, let me give you this charge, this command. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. 
two key phrases we want to focus on in this verse are this, this act of spiritual worship. What are we offering to God? What are we rendering to God? What, what service are we giving to God? Well, it says it right before then. You are giving him your whole self. Your body, you're presenting yourself as a living sacrifice. See, in the Old Testament, and through the whole Levitical system, that there, there would have been a sacrifice system. There would have been ways for people to try to right their relationship with God through sacrifice. And very simply, just thinking about it, if they're going to give a sacrifice, is the animal dead or alive? Well, it was alive, but when they were offering it, it's dead. It's not going to do a whole lot after that, whether it was bull, goat, whatever it was. It's going to be dead and it's going to be offered up. But here, this phrase, this is a living sacrifice, a continual sacrifice, a sacrifice that lives and moves and breathes and continues to be a sacrifice is what God is calling us to. Not a one-time sacrifice, not a one-time committing your life in any way. No, no, no. The sacrifice has already been made for you that suffice God in his judgment and his perfectness and his wrath. And now we are called to make our own sacrifice over and over again. And it's not a sacrifice of just cognitive assent that think the right things. Think the right things and then God will love you. Or do the right things and God will love you. No, they're saying your whole body, everything about you, every bit of you, your thoughts, your heart, your mind, your words, your voice, everything about you. This is a living sacrifice to present all of you, your whole body to God. But in view of that Old Testament, does God still, does he still really require sacrifices? I mean, we've been coming here a little while. I mean, if you haven't been coming here a while, I'll let you know we don't do sacrifices up here. <laughs> well, in a way. Um, we receive a sacrifice from God in, at the altar when we come together for communion, but we don't do sacrifice. But does he still really require, does, so we're, we're hearing here, be a living sacrifice. But does, he, does God want a sacrifice? Does he still need a sacrifice? Well, we actually see in the Old Testament the difference between God wanting a sacrifice and not wanting a sacrifice. And it's found in Psalm 51. This is by the most famous king in all the Old Testament. This is David. He loved God. God loved him. David got caught up in some sin, some terrible, terrible sin. He committed adultery. He murdered someone. He lied about it. He covered it all up until he was finally confronted with his own sin, does he actually pen this psalm? And he comes before God, knowing that it's only before God that he sinned, and he says, create me a clean heart. Oh God, renew a right spirit within me. He, he knew that he was far from God. He knew that that sin that he allowed to fester and take root in his life, it needed to be gone, and that there's nothing that he could do. He's asking God to renew the right spirit. God, to give him a clean heart. He goes on with some the following verses in 16 and 17, and it says this, of God, for you will not delight in a sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. So here we see that the very first step to be a living sacrifice 
is not to go do something, not to go gather something up, but to go sit on the altar to show God how much you love him and how much you want to offer him. The first thing that he wants from you is for you to actually recognize your right position before him as a sinner, before a holy and righteous and perfect God that each of us fall short. And it's not just that we fall short one time, we fall short continually over and over every day that we need mercy and that the posture of our heart should actually be broken before God. That's the first right sacrifice because in and of ourselves, there's nothing that we could do to right that relationship with God. Moving forward, in the last verse of this psalm, which I find interesting because it says, you don't delight in sacrifices, but then just a few verses later, it says this. It says, then you will delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole offerings, then bulls will be offered on your altar. So there's two kinds of sacrifices. There's a sacrifice of atonement. There's a sacrifice that makes things right. We can't give that sacrifice. The good news, though, is that sacrifice has already been given. In Jesus Christ, on the cross, on his, through his death, taking and bearing the weight and consequence of all of our sin. And, not, and even more than that, resurrecting on that third day, which we celebrated last week, that we have hope. A sacrifice has been made for that atonement. There is a right relationship. You are justified. You are made right. You are made whole. Nothing that you could do in and of yourself has done this, but Jesus alone has done this. And then, then there, from that place, having received that right relationship, here's the call, just like Paul's about to make this call to us. Now, make a right sacrifice. Now, give him what you will. And it's not for atonement, but it's for thankfulness. It's for gratitude. It's in response, which is ultimately sums up what worship is. Worship is not us coming to God to make the relationship right. Worship is not us coming to God to make him happy. Worship is us coming to God because we've been made right. Worship is us coming to God because he is happy, not in us, but in Christ who is now in us. And then we lift up a shout of praise. Then we worship God in that posture. So when I ask you that question, I set it up. Does God like it? Is he happy when you come to church? Well, he was already happy before we came to church because of his son. Then we come and we lift up a praise to him, which we actually see in Hebrews is the right thing to do. Through Jesus, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise, literally a shout of praise, to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name, that it is good and right to worship him, like it was stated before, that it is your whole body, your whole being that should worship him, including your voice. I love this, the, the, one of the key indicators, correlation, causation, you can try to determine, but key indicator, that your child is going to remain in the faith after the age of 18, well, there's church attendance, there's church attendance by mom, there's church attendance by dad. The biggest indicator, does dad sing in church? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Poor, and you know what? It, it doesn't mean good, right? It could be poorly, it could be bad. 
But does he sing? Is it in him enough of that outer response to the good news that he knows to be true, that he's willing, even if he has a bad voice, it's still a joyful noise to God? And do his kids look at him and see him going, he doesn't care about what other people think around him because he cares more about what God needs to receive from us, right? <laughs> and so after this service, we're going to start a men's course. For our kids, right, guys? For our kids. <laughs> Singing's interesting, too, just as a whole. If you look out there, just communal singing altogether, there are, there's actually benefits even outside the church. It actually raises dopamine and serotonin and other good, feel-good uh, transmitters, neurotransmitters in your brain. Makes you feel closer to other people. It actually lowers blood pressure. And if you regularly sing with other people, even, not, even if it's not at church, you will live longer. That's not why you should gather here, but you know, it's, it's like one of, the, <laughs> one of the perks, you know, one of the perks of coming and lifting up our voices to God, who is most certainly worthy of it. And that is, again, it's what God is asking of us. Jesus actually says it in this way. In Matthew 22, this is, uh, this is summing up what does, uh, if I, there we go. Oh boy, here we go. Matthew 22, there we go. <laughs> I'm going to hand it back to you, Mark. Go ahead if you want to go to Matthew 22. Thank you, Mark. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your mind. Every bit of you. Again, right here, it's laid out there. This is the first and foremost commandment to love God. And that literally every other commandment after that, if you're to break any other commandment, well, you've broken this first. You've not loved God as you should because you... If you did, then you wouldn't steal. If you did, then you wouldn't commit adultery. If you did love God like you should, then you wouldn't murder. This is the first and foremost law. This is the first and foremost command for all of us to give him our all, which is this spiritual act of worship. That worship can be, as we talk, the church gathering together, receiving good gifts from God, hearing his word again, and praising him. But it also is, the other 167 hours every week when you're not in a church service that you should be loving God with every bit of you, with all of your mind, with all your heart, with all of your soul. So church, does God have your all? Does he have all of your mind? Are our thoughts consumed with him at all times? Are is your time, is your time even, you know, always you're thinking about all the things that you're doing and you're doing them for God? All of your strength? All of your finances? All the work that you do at work, is that really for him? Does he have every bit of you? It makes me think of when I was about 10 or 11 years old. And at that time, they, they released the first version of the gaming system, the PlayStation. And I asked my folks if I could get one, and they said, sure, you can get one, but you're going to have to pay for it, right? And so, uh, you know, mowing the lawn, getting allowance, uh, looking through couch cushions, looking through car seats, returning cans, all this stuff, like I'm just gathering nickels and dimes, literally even pennies together so I could have a hundred bucks to go buy this game system because it's, it's what I wanted. 
I saw great worth and great value in this thing, and so literally I'm scrounging up every last cent that I can find so that I could march in the mire, that I could ga- go over to the game section, and that I could lay out on the counter there in like Ziploc bags and piles and like a few dollars here and there. And, and immediately, God bless the, the person who's working there, they get on and they're like, we need help over the games. You know, so they call a couple other employees over and they're counting all their pennies, nickels, dimes, quarters that I scrounged together to get this thing. Because I was all in. I pushed all my chips in literally because I wanted this thing. I saw a great value. I was willing to do anything to get it. And here, in Matthew 22, we hear that. Give God your all. But again, keeping the order correct. You have to realize that he first pushed all of his chips in through Jesus Christ. He didn't do any half measures in trying to win you back, in trying to redeem you from the sin that you are continually caught in. He didn't send Jesus down to give you a couple more rules to follow, but he gave you his one and only son to die on a cross that you deserve. And he said, I'm all in, and in light of him being all in. Then again, here it is, the response. God's all in on you. He saw the immense value and worth of each and every one of us. And he didn't think it was enough just to try to win him back little by little. But he gave his all. And so now the only appropriate response to that is for us to give our all as well. The problem is we're sinful. And so the hope is that as we see this, as we see how we can grow and how the Holy Spirit can continually renew and bring to mind the ways that we fall short and the good that he's calling us to do, is that we keep giving him a little more. We keep giving him a little more. We recognize our brokenness. We recognize his goodness. And we keep giving him a little bit more, a little bit more of our thought life, a little bit more of our relationships, a little bit more of our work life, a little bit more of our finances, a little bit more of our life as a whole because he is worth it. And the way that you can actually go about this, I think I mentioned them in seminary, so here you go. You get a Latin term today, so you get your money's worth. <laughs> it says lex carendi, lex orandi, which means the way you believe is the way you pray. And so if we're going to extrapolate off that a little bit, how you worship informs what you believe, and how you believe informs the way you worship. We know this to be true. Just even in your own life, if you want to make a change in your life, you can fake it till you. And if you want to change, you can change by actions and you can change by thoughts. And then as we worship, even if you don't feel like worshiping as you worship, it actually changes the way you view yourself and view God. The way you view yourself and you view God changes the way you worship. It's cyclical. It continues to work on one another. But... It works in the positive light when you're thinking on God and when you're worshiping God, but it also works negatively when it comes to other things, which Paul addresses here in the next verse. In Romans 12, 2, just moving forward that one verse, he says, do not conform to this world. There are pressures in this world that are going to constantly be on you that are contrary to the way God wants you to live. Do not conform, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, 
what is good and acceptable and perfect, which is what we all desire, isn't it? To know God's will for our life. Well, that if we think on the things God wants us to think on, if we worship God in the way that he deserves to be worshipped, if we see ourselves in light, just like David did, that we should be broken before a holy God, but we don't have to stay broken because we've been redeemed, well, then we can be transformed. But there's a danger of conformity. And in a society that really values being an individual, a unique snowflake, unlike anybody else, you're, you're unique. We don't really want to admit that we conform. But I got a, a brief video I want to share with you that kind of shows all of us just how easy it is for us to conform. We set up a hidden camera experiment to see if this woman would stand up at the sound of this tone simply because everyone else is. You might be thinking you'd never go along with this. Or would you? After just three beats, and without knowing why she's doing it, this woman is now conforming perfectly to the group. But what happens if we take the group away? Elaine, please. Okay, now she's alone, the crowd is gone, and nobody is watching her, except our hidden cameras. What do you think she'll do? She's now conforming to the rules of the group without them even being there. Now, watch what happens when we introduce another outsider who doesn't know the rules. Have a seat and they'll be out in just a couple minutes. Thanks so much. Think she'll teach the new guy what to do? We kept the cameras rolling as more unsuspecting patients arrived. But surely, what began as a random rule for this woman has now become the social norm for everyone in this waiting room. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to see if the team here could find that exact same beep because I was curious how many of you would stand up following that video. I mean, we wouldn't like to think that we would do that, but it's, it's hard to come to terms with, right? That we are social creature, creatures and that social conformity pressure 
is real. This is actually based off an older experiment where folks would actually face the wrong way in an elevator, not towards the doors, and people conform to it. This is the pressure. This is how we are almost wired to be like those around us. And the issue that is before us is not just that we conform in these funny and odd ways, but that we conform to a way of the world that is contrary to the way that God would have us live. And so do we, do we actually look different as a church or those inside of the church? Do, do we look different from those around us? And how we spend our time and how we, how we carry ourselves at work and how we treat our families, do we look different? Or do we simply conform? Or do we feel those pressures? Do we see that when the Joneses across the street, when they get something new, when they get a new car, do you need a new car? When they do their landscape, you got to get your landscaping down. Their yard, so they mow, i got to mow. Do we, do we see and feel that conforming pressure to us? Especially within our American society, because I tell you what, if you just look it up, and I did, if you look up what are the values of Americans, just as a whole, it doesn't always line up with the values of God. And here's a little bit of a breakdown, just a, a cursory look at some of these values that we could, if you go forward, Mark, I don't know, this ain't working for me. Go forward one. There you go. On the left-hand side, there. <laughs> I'm going to let you take over. Uh, on the left-hand side, that we, we value being an individual. We value success, that we value material, material goods and consuming goods, being independent, and that we value status. I mean, these things are American as apple pie, are they not? I mean, we, we want to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We want to earn this stuff. We want to do this thing. Where God's church, God's people are actually supposed to look contrary to that. That above the self, you're supposed to value the community because you're part of the body of Christ. That rather than being successful, you're not going to come to the gates or when Jesus returns, he's not going to look upon you and say, well done, good and successful servant. He wants you to be faithful. He doesn't want you to accrue a whole bunch of treasures here on earth, but that your true spiritual treasure is found in heaven and that here, this one we have a hard time with, you are dependent. You might not want to admit it, but when it comes to grace, when it comes to a right standing before God, you are not independent. You do not want to be independent. You want to be clothed in Christ. You want to be completely and utterly dependent on God. And that's what he has called us to live as. And rather than pursuing status that he calls us to serve, to take the lowest seat at the table, that even Jesus, God in flesh, was willing to wash his own disciples' feet and, of course, go to die on a cross for all of us. And so, there's this next question for us, is then how are we transformed? Because we don't want to be conformed. We don't want to look like the rest of the world, but then how is it that we're actually transformed? Because if you've lived any sort of life, you know that in and of yourself, we can fall short time and time again that we can try to do the right things, but we'll end up doing the wrong thing. And sometimes we do the wrong things, we don't end up doing the right things. This is, it's not in our nature to be transformed, to be pleasing to God. Out of the book of Philippians in chapter 4, it says this. It says, finally, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. It's not just your thought life, but there we have to ponder, we have to think, we have to reflect and appreciate, not just once a week, not just one hour, but again, the other 167 hours to think on these things that are worthy of praise, 
to think on our shortcomings, even that, though that's uncomfortable, but that we recognize that daily, daily we need to remember the hope that is found in Christ. Daily we need to remember our own brokenness. Otherwise, we become susceptible to being puffed up in pride, that we can do things on our own or we even just get distracted and go a different direction, but to approach God just as David did in all humility, with a broken and contrite heart. Because day and day again, his mercies are new and his mercies have to be new because day and day again, we found ways to fall into the same sins and into new sins. And that ultimately, all of his mercies that he offers us continually all point back to the cross where he won for us victory over sin, death, and the devil. And so now we get to this opportunity to walk in newness of life, be transformed by seeing ourselves as we truly are, sinners, so that we can see God, who he truly is, holy, righteous, and just, and deserving of all of our praise. And that our lives then are transformed as we see clearly, clearly the relationship that we have as creatures to our creator, as those that are redeemed to our redeemer. And from that place that we can go about our daily life as a living act of spiritual worship, as a living sacrifice towards God, and that we can gather here weekly, and yes, it is the command that I gather regularly here weekly, not as a got-to, not as a way to earn God's love, not a way to make him happy, but that you get to gather here because as you are reminded of those things, of your brokenness and his goodness, that here, it is here in church that you get to hear that message again and again, and you receive his good gifts. And then you have the opportunity collectively, communally, to lift up a shout of praise, to praise a God who, again, is most worthy of our praise. So again, has church changed? Has worship changed? Or did we never really have the right definitions of church and worship to start with? And maybe as we move forward from this place, having looked back, that we have a right understanding. We are the body of Christ. We are the people. We are his people. And it is good and it is right for us to gather and lift up a praise because we get to. Will you pray with me? Oh, Father God, thank you for your word. God, we thank you for the gift it is to gather as a body of believers. God, that we have the ability here, the freedom here, that we get to gather together and be reminded yet again of your goodness and your love and your mercy. God, enable all of us by your Holy Spirit to be those living sacrifices that you've called us to be. God, call to mind all the ways that we fall short, and then God, quickly call to mind again the way that you have reconciled that sin, that you have reconciled us to you, and now we have the opportunity to live lives that are pleasing to you, God, through your Son. And so this morning with this last song, let us lift up a shout of praise to a God who is more than worthy and more deserving than we could ever think, ask, or imagine, God. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.